From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. From a converted church in Boulder, a radio show beams out live music and eco-conscious conversation. Welcome to E-Town Hall, our solar-powered musical clubhouse. we got an amazing group of inquisitive guests this week, seekers. Nick Forster is co-host of E-Town. For Earth Day, we'll talk musical legends, climate change, and everyday environmental heroes. A guy literally rented a barge and started dredging stuff up out of the Mississippi one mile at a time. We've taken out to date 1,920 bags of trash, 2,912 tires, 148 refrigerators. Then a healthy snowpack's a good thing. A rapid melt, not so much. If we get some really warm weather, that is going to be a serious problem across western Colorado because that water will come down in a hurry. From accountability journalism to stories focused on solutions, climate reporting has become an integral part of the in-depth coverage you depend on. Understanding current and future challenges and solutions is vital, and you and your community need to be informed. That's why we're asking you to step up and financially support CPR's climate coverage. Your gift goes directly towards supporting this impactful and important journalism. Invest in the future of fact-based climate reporting at CPR.org climate. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Tomorrow's Earth Day, which is also the anniversary of a long-running show that broadcasts from Boulder. E-Town is the eco-minded music program that, in its 32 years, has hosted President Jimmy Carter, Willie Nelson, Mavis Staples, Brandy Carlisle, and Colorado's own Nathaniel Radliff. Now close your eyes. Spin around, say, hard times so you could find it in the way that you want. But it's still alright. Nick Forster, who rose to popularity in the bluegrass band Hot Rise, co-hosts E-Town with his wife Helen. They recorded the first show on Earth Day 1991, a snippet here from their archive. I got quite a few phone calls in the last month or so from people saying, um, I, I've got this song about the environment and um, I'd like to do it on your show. And that's you know, potentially part of what we're gonna do, but that's uh, not really the focus. What, we're, what I was really hoping to do is combine musicians that are sincere, that are honest and uh, straightforward and heartfelt. And uh, I'm really happy with the, the gang that we have at the first show. Would you please welcome Maura O'Connell. Real treat to have her with us. I spent a little time with Nick at E-Town Hall in downtown Boulder. Nick, thanks for meeting us at E-Town. I'm curious, when you hear early recordings of yourself, what goes through your mind? Like, I, I hate hearing early tape of myself. I think it didn't take us that long to stop being terrible. I think we were terrible in the first couple shows, and I think it was an inherent with our ambition, which is we wanted to do a music show, but the music was in some ways in service to the bigger mission, which is we wanted to stimulate dialogue around climate change and sustainability and how we treat each other and the planet. And so that was a tricky balance to find when we started. So those are the parts that make me cringe. After a little while, we sort of settled into a zone that was not preachy, not condescending, not I know it all, or let me help you be better. It was, 
just more naturally sharing great information and great dialogue with really smart people. I want to key in on one word you use there, or one concept, and that's climate change. So the show starts in 91. Was climate change or global warming, was that in the show's vocabulary from the beginning? Absolutely. That was totally on my mind and really one of the founding concepts as to why I was inspired to start E-Town. I was just thinking about my three kids, the eldest of whom was 13 at the time. And we live in Boulder, and Boulder is home to all the national labs. This was not a concept that I was unfamiliar with, and yet it was not at all part of the national vernacular vocabulary. And so I got a lot of pushback from radio stations just saying, hey, would you just shut up about climate change and play some more music? What were people's reactions to the term climate change? I mean, if they had heard it for the first time. I think in those days we used global warming more often. And it was a conversation that I really tried to bring into some very personal focus. So we talked about water. We talked about agriculture. We talked about um, sea level rising. We talked about all these things as impacts that we need to be aware of and we should be uh, thinking of, and that this is now our opportunity to try to make a difference. But these things are real. They're coming. The science is good. There's consensus. doesn't mean we can't have fun. We can't listen to music. We can't enjoy each other's company. But we should educate ourselves. Do you remember who the first musical guest was? Oh, yeah. Our first show was Maura O'Connell, an Irish singer, Sonny Landreth, a slide guitar player from Louisiana, the sub-dudes who were living in Fort Collins, and songwriter David Wilcox. show never made it to air. It never made it to air. It, that show didn't make it to air because I hadn't figured it out yet. And I didn't have any real confidence in the concept. So I thought, well, if I put a bunch of great musicians and a bunch of smart people and I get them all sort of lined up and going through, it's going to be good. But it wasn't. It was too much transition, um, not enough time to really sink into any of the pieces and get a flavor for what each of those guests was bringing to the table. So it took me a little while. I will say, though, in our first season, when we were going through this evolution, we did have Lyle Lovett and Sean Colvin and James Taylor and lots of people whom I had gotten to know through touring with Hot Rise um, say, oh, Nick's got this thing going on, and Nick and Helen are doing this thing. Let's come by if we can. And so there was a lot of enthusiasm for the concept. And Ryan, it's particularly because of our interest and our focus on environmental issues and climate change. Earlier, you talked about your children. 
Can you sit here today saying that they are better off environmentally than they were when you launched the show? That's such a mean question. <laughs> the truth of the matter is, no, they're not better off environmentally, but that's not because we didn't try. And so the, the fact of the matter is, I was at a midpoint in my career where I felt like I had an opportunity to combine my skills as a musician and as an interviewer with my concerns and my values. And if you get to do that in your lifetime, that's a win. And I grew up around inspiring characters like Pete Seeger and the Staples Singers and others who made me feel like they rose to meet the moment using their skills and their talents to try to make things better, to try to make a difference. And in their cases, they definitely did, whether it's the civil rights era or cleaning up the Hudson River or other things they were focused on. Apart from musical acts, the show honors guests who've won the Achievement Award, an honor given to folks from all walks of life who've improved their communities. Uh, will you tell us about a winner with an idea that maybe blew your mind? There are two categories of winners that blew my mind. One is the well-known, iconic leaders who have just been so inspiring throughout their lives. And I mean people like Jane Goodall. The other category of winners that were so inspiring were the ones who are simple, day-to-day, see a problem, take a step, that step grows and it becomes substantial. And so many of them were humbling, not just to me, but to our musical guests. And whether it's somebody literally being concerned about what's being dumped into the Mississippi River and a guy literally rented a barge and got his friends and started dredging stuff up out of the Mississippi one mile at a time. His name is Chad Bagracki. He was on a show with Ben Harper and Ben was so inspired. He sent him a boom box. He sent him a little money just to encourage this crazy idea of one guy trying to clean up the Mississippi River. Yep. Chad, tell me about some of the things you've extracted. Um, well, um, we've taken out to date 1,920 bags of trash, 2,912 tires, 148 refrigerators, 257 propane tanks, vans, cars, school buses, um, jacuzzis, four motorcycles, 22 bikes, nine boats, six lawnmowers, and um, 56 TVs, um, two microwaves, 25 stoves, 38 sinks, seven bathtubs, 18 toilets, uh, 215 chairs, you name it, we've taken it out of there. 30 washing machines, 41 heaters, uh, you know, 93 uh, gas cans. So, uh, yeah. Whoa. Yeah. When you're talking about big issues, intractable, unsolvable, global warming, climate change, sea level rise, these things seem so big that individuals lose their sense of potential in terms of being part of the solution. So we really wanted, and Helen was very focused on the Achievement Award. We needed to have those conversations with one person doing one thing that made a difference. The environmental movement has struggled over the years with diversity, as so many movements and institutions have. And yet, of course, we know that people in low-income communities, low-income countries, are and will be disproportionately affected by climate change and pollution. Uh, do you think E-Town has done enough to reflect that? 
Environmental justice was always on our radar and was a regular part of our dialogue over the years. I think starting very early because a lot of my friends and our early musicians came from Louisiana, we had a particular focus on Cancer Alley and the kinds of disproportionate impact that communities of color suffered because of virtually lack of regulation in Louisiana. So this toxic environment was something we talked about and discussed with some regularity, but obviously not limited to that particular region. But that was where a jump started for me. So did we do enough? Could we have done more? Certainly, we could have talked about it more, but it was absolutely a part of our regular dialogue. Where we've met E-Town Hall is many things. It's a recording studio, a concert hall. Uh, I attended a daytime dance party here, Nick, because this is open to the community as well. Uh, This hall is also a former church. And in fact, there's a pew uh, just a few paces from us. This conversion took several years. What was the most vexing part of that? And then what was like the happiest accident? One of the biggest challenges was simply getting a permit because the nature of a church is that it's very restrictive zoning. And so I confronted the city of Boulder many times trying to buy this building for E-Town. And they said, well, you can buy it, but you can't use it because you're not a church. And it took me years before I finally figured out I could go online and become ordained, which I did. And so I went back to the city and I said, the beautiful thing is we're a 501c3 nonprofit organizations, which churches are. We do a lot of singing. We celebrate good works in the community. And I'm an ordained minister. That was the most daunting challenge and the most sort of devious solution that we found. And every step of the way was kind of like that. Once we secured the building and we didn't have the funds to renovate it, that was an enormous challenge. Once we figured out that we wanted to make it the greenest building we could, and assembling the team of uh, acoustical engineers, mechanical engineers, structural engineers, architects, contractors. Very, very challenging, but incredibly rewarding to now have this temple to the values that E-Town represents and have it be a solar-powered facility in the middle of downtown Boulder. It's, It's pretty rewarding. Indeed, this is a green building. You can actually go online and monitor the amount of energy E-Town Hall's solar panels are producing. Are you, to this day, an ordained minister? I'm not sure I've maintained my credentials, but I think so. I know that um, I performed one wedding so far, which was an impactful one. It was Lou Reed and Laurie Anderson, and I officiated their wedding ceremony here in Boulder. Is being here, is performing here, is being with community here, is it a religious experience? Is it a spiritual experience? I think it is a spiritual experience, fundamentally because I think music, if it's done well, uh, opens us up in ways that we aren't even aware of. And to be gathered in community, focused in the same direction, having your hearts opened simultaneously, is an absolute recipe for a spiritual experience. And then I think if you combine that with the intention behind why E-Town is doing this, which is that the music is about bringing us together, but we're also trying to elevate how we are in the world, how we treat each other, how we see our role as citizens, as global citizens. And then, of course, it becomes a little more literal because 
I've been doing these Sunday morning services called Hippie Bluegrass Church. And so that's an opportunity for us to really literally do what the building has been doing for a hundred years. The E-Tones are E-Town's house band, performing with musical guests, often allowing them to visit the show without their regular band. Is that scary for some artists? It is. It's terrifying for some artists. And um, we now are in the enviable position of being able to share videos of the house band playing with so many people so successfully that it assuages their fears pretty quickly. But the reality is E-Town was conceived at a different time in the music business where that was more common. Artists would go on promotional tours to promote their record before their records came out. And so traveling, sparse, playing solo, interacting with house bands was a little more familiar to musicians 30 years ago. These days, it's still kind of an uncomfortable or uncertain arena for younger musicians. But I'm proud to say we've had great musicians in the house band since we started. Name a pairing that just sparkled recently. I was really challenged and delighted by this duo from New York City called Meadows. It's just a husband and wife duo. They spell their band name with two M's at the front. And the other act was Dallas Green, who's a singer-songwriter from Canada, from Toronto. And they occupy different arenas in the musical spectrum, but they have a lot of overlap. And the collision was lovely at the end when we just found common ground. Have you had a guest so famous or so accomplished, someone you admire so much, that they've made you nervous? Yes, certainly. Jimmy Carter, you know, there have been interview guests. I care so much about what they've done and what they represent that I wanted to be well-prepared without being over-prepared. And as president, can we talk a little bit about the way your faith helped you through issues that I'm sure were very tricky, very, well, very challenging, uh, things that, that were, there's no easy path. I prayed more when I was president than I did any other time in my life. <laughs> but, uh, but I never did pray that I would be popular. I never did pray that I would be reelected. I prayed that I would keep my nation at peace. I prayed that I might find peace for other people. And, uh, when the hostages were taken by Iranians, I prayed that every hostage would come home safe and free. All these prayers were answered. The first time that Pop Staples was on the show, I was a little nervous. Maybe the first time James Taylor was on the show, we were a little concerned about just his expectation and his his level of experience. I grew up in the bluegrass community where playing music collaboratively comes with the territory. So it's always really comfortable for me to find a song, find a key, find an arrangement, make something happen and make it happen in real time. But there are artists for whom that's just not what they do. Sarah McLaughlin, the first time she was on E-Town was terrified and I, I had to sit with her and think, what were the records you grew up listening to? Can you Take yourself back to your room at home in Nova Scotia. Well, I did have a Cat Stevens record. Great. Is there a Cat? Do you know this song? What if we, you know, sometimes it's really a, almost like a therapy session, helping musicians get comfortable with a cover song that they'd be willing to share. 
Sarah McLaughlin doing Cat Stevens. Oh, we've got to hear that. Yeah, with Richard Thompson. And it was the first time Helen sang Harmony on E-Town, that particular show. Your wife and co-host. The feel of E-Town is so much based on gathering. And of course, the pandemic meant that that wasn't possible. What was the effect of the pandemic on the show? And would you reflect on what it was like to be back together again at E-Town Hall? That's a great question, Ryan. I think the pandemic made us rethink everything for a little while. Um, The first thing that was so remarkable was that it forced us to stop this treadmill of production that we'd been on for decades, where you finish a show and you prep for the next show, and then you finish that show and you prep for the next show. And so being forced to stop and take stock of where we are and what we're doing was a profound opportunity for us. We did some really successful remote recordings, including one between Rufus Wainwright and Brandy Carlisle, that is one of the things that I'm still the most proud of, I think wouldn't have happened without the pandemic. I am not alone The other thing it did, the pandemic allowed us to look back on our archives. We did a concerted effort to take 30 years in 30 weeks and just do the best of each year, each week. And we found that we couldn't fit in a week some of the best moments of a year of E-Town taping. So we extended that. And then, of course, now we get to do it in real time again. We get to see what happens when these artists are interacting with each other in person, on stage, and making something new in front of an audience. It really feels good to be back. Nick, thanks so much. I appreciate your welcoming us. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate it. Nick Forrester is co-host of E-Town in Boulder, which is celebrating its third decade. The show is available everywhere you get podcasts. Nick's hippie bluegrass church and Earth Day celebration take place Sunday morning. This is a band I learned about from E-Town, The Lone Bellow. You don't love me like you 
Just a spirit haunting my bed House I built for you feels like a tomb You don't love me like you used to You waited at the bus of flowers in hell I'm Ryan Warner, and Colorado Matters continues shortly on CPR News and KRCC. The Southwest has been in a drought for more than 20 years. That's a big problem for the Colorado River and the 40 million people who use it. There's no free or cheap water anymore. With the historical low levels, it's scary. Parched, the new podcast from CPR News about people who rely on the river that shaped the West and have ideas to save it. Find it wherever you get podcasts. Parched, supported by Alpine Bank. It's like whack-a-mole, except scary, not fun. There comes a time when wildfires pop up all over Colorado, and we watch as crews scramble to contain them. That time is here. Also here, Mike Nelson, Denver 7 chief meteorologist, who joins us monthly to discuss Colorado weather and climate. Hi, Mike. Hi, Ryan. How are you today? Doing well. We saw red flag warnings this week up and down the Front Range, onto the plains, uh, in essence, critical fire weather conditions. What all goes into determining a red flag warning? We have a couple of factors that are in uh, temperature, humidity, and wind, along with the dryness across eastern Colorado right now. Even though we've made great progress getting out of the drought in the western half of the state, we still have moderate to uh, extreme drought in some parts of southeastern Colorado, especially down around Pueblo. And so when you get a warm, windy day with all of the dry conditions there, that leads to fire danger. How does wind get measured, like for the official record? Is it those funny little things that look like measuring spoons? Well, it's an anemometer. And yes, I built one out of little uh, cups, Dixie cups when I was a kid and had a little thing that would click on a roller skate wheel. And that's how I measured the wind when I built my home weather station as a 10-year-old. Now they can actually use ultrasound. So at the new weather station that's, of course, we've talked about that's going in out at Central Park, we'll have just these little prongs that stick up and using ultrasound, they can measure how the wind is going by these and measure the speed. So there's not actually the little spinning thing at all anymore. By way of background, you have helped erect this weather station in Central Park, formerly the Stapleton Airport. Uh, When DIA opened, the weather station was moved there, but you lost the continuity of Central Park data. And so you have advocated for this kind of secondary weather station in Central Park, which will marry all of that old Stapleton data with what happens on that very site closer to the city of Denver, henceforth. I think of a day that I was in Golden, And I was stunned by the force of the wind. And shortly after, the Boulder County fire broke out. Maybe you remember the winds that day, Mike. Well, and Highway 93 is notorious for being a tough place to drive up there. And we've talked before that the reason that the National Wind Technology Center is up there uh, by Rocky Flats is because 
not of steady wind, but extreme gusts. And so as the winds come down through the canyons to the west, that's why we get those very strong wind gusts there. What happened with the Marshall Fire, of course, is it was very dry, very warm. Uh, we had not had much precipitation that December at all. And uh, strong winds, you get a fire started and the vegetation just goes. Spring in Colorado is a study in contrasts. And speaking of contrasts, we've got red flag warnings that we've seen this week uh, on the Front Range, on the Plains, as I said. Meanwhile, on the Western Slope, flood warnings. What gives with this contrast? <laughs> well, it's starting to warm up, of course. So we're going to get uh, days that you get very windy conditions because the wind feeds off of the contrast and temperature from north to south across North America. So it's, it's getting warmer from the south and winter is kind of gradually giving it up as far as uh, its extent to the north. You get a lot more wind in there because you have a greater temperature contrast north to south. As it's warming up as well, that deep snowpack that we've had, we've been blessed with this winter, is starting to melt out. So we're getting a lot of snowmelt flooding. And in the weeks to come, if we get some really warm weather, last part of April and the first couple of weeks of May, that is going to be a serious problem across western Colorado because that water will come down in a hurry. I was thinking the other day of the expression, April showers bring May flowers. Uh, is that generally true in the arid west, Mike Nelson? <laughs> Actually, uh, much of the West, if you've been watching on the news feeds, parts of Texas and California are having these amazing super blooms of flowers like the poppies out in uh, the Antelope Valley in California because they've had such a wet winter. Uh, so, yes, in general, across the West, the wet winter gives way to great flowers in April and May. Here, yeah, uh, we're starting to think things are leafing out. Things are starting to really get going. A lot of the... Uh, pansies and stuff are already blooming, the daffodils. So it's a great time after a long winter. But remember, the old adage is do not, no matter how warm it gets in April or early May, don't plant that vegetable garden until after Mother's Day. Yeah. That whole idea of fool's spring. Of course, I think of the wildflowers and the festival around them in Crested Butte, a more alpine environment. I caught something in your Denver 7 bio that stood out to me. I'll just quote it. Mike helped to provide forecasts crucial to the construction of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. End quote. That's an oil pipeline built in the 70s. And today, Mike Nelson, you are a vocal booster of renewables. And I was just curious how you feel about that pipeline work today. Well, that was... Over 40 years ago, and uh, from the weather consulting company that I worked for in Madison, Wisconsin, we had to try and forecast what the conditions would be in northern Alaska up around Prudhoe Bay so that they could get the big trucks out there to lay down a road, an ice road, in order to haul in all the equipment. So it was a long time ago. It was fascinating forecasting, and certainly the oil that has come from the Alaska pipeline has been good for national security. I would tell you this. When I talk about climate change, I give this about fossil fuel. Fossil fuel has been a miracle. Life without fossil fuel was cold, dark, and short. And nobody wants to live in a hut with a candle. Uh, however, the reality is that when you light fossil carbon on fire, the carbon dioxide produced in the atmosphere traps heat and warms up the planet. It's not politics. It's just physics. 
So we have to stop doing that as quickly as we can because the CO2 from the very first Model T car is still in the atmosphere, trapping heat and warming up the planet. It's called the residence time of the carbon dioxide, which is centuries. And so a lot of the warming that we see is baked in, but it's never too late to stop making things worse. And so as we transition to renewable energy, we don't have to make that decision of we're going to live in a hut with a candle. That's a false choice. We can have our modern society and we can do it without continuing to put as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere as we do. And with Earth Day being tomorrow, every single day worldwide right now, we are adding about 100 million tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, heat trapping gas that is making the world warmer. Doesn't mean you won't have a cold day. Doesn't mean it won't snow in April because that's weather. But the long-term temperature of the planet is warming up. You know, I respect that that part of your biography remains online because I think it speaks to an evolution. It speaks to the notion that when we get new information, we can change our minds, we can change our perspective. And I think that message, Mike, feels really important right now when, I don't know, there's a, there's a lot of digging in of heels around any number of issues. Well, we've seen an awful lot of, uh, of that, a lot of tribalism, if you will. And the thing that I like to uh, point out to people is that two of the greatest transformative uh, bits of legislation in the United States were uh, the Transcontinental Railroad and the Interstate Highway System. Both transformed our nation. Both were signed legislation by Republican presidents. And so from the political side, I'd like to say that we just need to all come together to find solutions, and we can power our economy with much more renewable energy. I'm not closing the door on nuclear. I've talked to a lot of people who I try and keep a very open mind on that. But the fact of the matter is we, we have to stop lighting fossil carbon on fire as quickly as we can because the planet's heating up. Thank you so much for being with us again. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Mike Nelson is chief meteorologist at Denver 7. He joins us regularly to talk about Colorado weather and climate. Be right back with a creature that's as fascinating as it is pesky, the mosquito. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. On the latest episode of My Story So Far, Coloradans impacted by the most destructive wildfire in our state's history. She said, there's a big fire. The horses are in trouble. Please help. And then she hung up. I'll never forget driving straight at it. I mean, that smoke cloud was huge, and it was black. My Story So Far, the new storytelling podcast from CPR. Find it wherever you get podcasts. There's concern mosquitoes will be a particularly big problem this year in the Grand Junction area. Heavy spring runoff could bring standing water where mosquito eggs can thrive. Historian and political scientist Tim Weingard of Colorado Mesa University wrote a book about these flying, biting insects, which he calls humans' deadliest predators. We spoke in 2019. Tim, welcome to the program. Thank you. Tell me about your last mosquito bite. I don't actually get bitten quite as much as other people do, thankfully. And there's various reasons for why they like some more than others. And that has to do with blood type, 
Uh, they prefer type O over A and B, oh. um, and I'm blood type B. People who have higher levels of certain chemicals in and on their skin and bacteria as well, including lactic acid, that's an aphrodisiac for mosquitoes. How much carbon dioxide people uh, respire is also an aphrodisiac. So about 85% of what makes you as an individual appetizing to mosquitoes is pre-wired in your genetic circuit board, unfortunately. My goodness. Now, is bite an accurate word? We talk about mosquito bites. Do you think that captures it well? It's actually an intricate feeding ritual for the females. Only females bite. There's six, essentially, (laughs) needles, if you will, that she uses. Two that kind of like one of those electric carving knives, a saw back and forth. Yeah. Two of those saw into your skin. Two more act as retractors, essentially, and hold it open. A fifth, which is the straw, essentially. And then a sixth pumps in saliva, which contains the anticoagulant to make it easier to get the blood, which causes an allergic reaction as well, which is the itchiness and and some minor swelling. But also through the saliva tube comes over 15 deadly diseases that she bestows upon humans, including obviously malaria, yellow fever, which are the two most deadly diseases she transmits, but also West Nile, Zika. And what should we be most concerned about in Colorado? I gather it's West Nile? In Colorado, yes, it's West Nile is pervasive in Colorado and some Milder or more benign cousins of West Nile, Jamestown Canyon virus, which was named after Jamestown, Colorado, actually. The snowshoe hair virus, these are relatively new mosquito-borne diseases that have made the zoonotic or spillover jump from uh, birds predominantly. So there are other mosquito-borne diseases in Colorado as well, but West Nile is the most pervasive. Do repellents ever work? You know, mosquito killers like DDT, they have worked. And and there's no questioning that DDT was a remarkable wonder chemical in the eradication of mosquitoes. But had, of course, other important environmental effects. Absolutely. But then she adapted and became immune to DDT. Uh, And it no longer worked against mosquitoes. So whether it's bug sprays, whether it's vaccines against malaria or various defenses we've come up with for you know, our campaigns against both mosquito and her diseases, they're usually short-lived before the mosquito and the diseases adapt and overcome. You draw connections in this book between the mosquito and almost every war, I mean, dating back to the time of Alexander the Great, the rise of the Roman Empire. Were you surprised by how much mosquitoes had shaped human history? Once I delved further and deeper into the research and and went down the rabbit hole, so to speak, I I was shocked how there was really very few instances in in human history in Western civilization that the mosquito has not in some way, shape or form uh, influenced or impacted, obviously some more than others, but it was astounding this universal tiny animal the size and weight of a grapeseed has punched way above her weight class for millennia, essentially across our existence. This centuries-long battle with mosquitoes has also affected your family in a personal way. I'd like you to tell us about your great-grandfather. My great-grandfather, William, he joined the Canadian Army in 1915 at the age of 15 to fight in the First World War. Uh, He was wounded and gassed on the Western Front, returned to Canada and joined the Canadian Navy at 16, still underage, and served the remainder of the war on a minesweeper off the coast of West Central Africa, the ancestral birthplace of uh, mosquito-borne disease and, and malaria. 
Um, and he, in 1918, he contracted typhoid, influenza, and vivax malaria all at the same time. That's three and, different uh, deadly diseases. Yes, and he was roughly 5'11 and 180 pounds, and when they were ready to throw him overboard, he weighed 97 pounds, and a, a crew member saw him blink, and he his life was saved. He spent a year uh, in hospital. They, they, they thought he was dead. They thought he was dead. Uh, he was essentially in a coma, and, they, and he had no pulse um, that they could find. Wow. Um, he spent a year in hospital uh, with recurrent malaria in Sierra Leone, and then another year in England. And finally, uh, in 1920, was allowed to return to Canada. And on the boat ride home, he noticed a teenage girl being seasick over the railing and being a seasoned sailor like he was, he, he cast a, sni- a few snide flirting remarks her way. And as my great-grandmother Hilda told me many years later, uh, in her own words, she gave him a tongue lashing. And the two quarreling lovers were happily married for 67 years. <laughs> I understand your wife's grandfather also had an experience with malaria. Yes, my wife is from Grand Junction, and, and her grandfather is from the, the Western Slope, um, and he served in the Second World War. So he contracted malaria at Anzio for the first time. The Nazis reflooded the Pontine Marshes outside Rome and around Anzio on purpose as a biological weapon to give the advancing Allied soldiers malaria. Knowing that the mosquitoes would follow. Yes, and Rex Rainey received his first bout of malaria at Anzio, and then he liberated the Dachau concentration camp as well. And Dachau was the home of the Nazi tropical medicine, experimental medicine program. So they had been using interned Jewish prisoners as human test subjects, obviously involuntary, uh, with experimental mosquitoes and malaria and yellow fever. And he contracted malaria again at Dachau while liberating Dachau from one of these experimental mosquitoes. And he had no idea until I told him in the spring of 2017 how he contracted malaria both at Anzio in 1944 and then at Dachau in southern Germany. You were the one to explain this to him. Yes. He he knew he had had malaria twice, uh, but had no idea how he had contracted it. And I, I kind of pulled the curtain back for him and told him the historical parameters of how he contracted malaria in both cases. Would there be a way to turn the power of the mosquito against itself? Yes. There's two ways I suppose we could rid the world of mosquito-borne disease. The first would be to rid the world of mosquitoes. Now, this isn't something that all people, politicians, scientists are in favor of, obviously. In order to do that, they would crisper males and release them into the wild, so to speak, to breed with females, and they would produce either infertile or only male offspring thereby eliminating the mosquito from the planet. It's so interesting. You're using CRISPR as a verb, and it's a kind of changing of a DNA sequence. Yeah, it's cutting and pasting genes at will, essentially. The other use of CRISPR would be to CRISPR the mosquitoes themselves to make them capable of vectoring the diseases themselves. So you save the mosquitoes and get rid of the diseases themselves. Huh. Do you have a preferred route? (laughs) I would like to see the mosquitoes stay. I think perhaps after the audience reads the book, they'll have a a greater appreciation or at least understanding of this universal but quite remarkable and adaptable animal. So I would prefer to 
rid the world of mosquito-borne disease, not necessarily, you know, bringing the mosquito to extinction and, and erecting a mosquito exhibit in the extinct wing of museums. <laughs> Are there benefits the mosquitoes provide? Could you find that? We don't know of any absolute benefits. They do pollinate plants. The males drink nectar, for example. They don't bite, but they do drink nectar. So they do pollinate plants, but not to a large extent when compared to bees or or Mm. other insects. They don't eat waste from other animals as other insects do. They don't serve as an indispensable food source for any other species that we know of. So by and large, they don't serve, as far as we know, an ecological purpose unto itself. Mind you, throughout our history, they've acted as a Malthusian check against uncontrolled population growth. So perhaps that is their function. Mm. Uh, and now I'm not saying that... But that, their, their, their threat to us is inherently their benefit in nature. Perhaps. Some who argue that eradicating mosquito-borne disease would, would be a danger uh, against uncontrolled human population growth. Um, and then obviously there's the other side that views it as, you know, the morally right thing to do to save lives. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Timothy Weingard is a professor of history and political science at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction. He's written The Mosquito, a human history of our deadliest predator. We spoke in 2019. This week on our show, we've heard a lot about the climate crisis, which is also top of mind for singer-songwriter Kathleen Brady-Ross, who performs simply as Kathleen. It's not like I sit down and I'm like, today I'm going to write about this. It's more like, I can't stop writing about it, and it drives me crazy because I feel like I'm writing the same song over and over sometimes, but then again, it's not exactly just fixing itself, the climate crisis, so I guess I'll just keep writing about it until we set any course of improvement. The Colorado-raised, L.A.-based artist is included on a climate justice compilation called The Eleventh Hour. It was curated by the filmmaker behind Don't Look Up, Adam McKay. Kathleen contributed the track Going in Reverse. All I've known is deadlines Seven years to go In Steamboat Springs and studying poetry at CU, Kathleen has found inspiration in nature, like with the song Asking the Aspens off her own album. Growing up with so much Colorado imagery, just so baked in my memories and how I think and how I form analogies and connections. I love how aspen groves grow where the tree shoots out of the root system. And so I was picturing this like man like growing out of the ground the way that an aspen shoots out of the root system. (laughs) There were times in the middle when I held you between my thoughts 
Like when you burned all your paintings in the backyard, couldn't be stopped. Oh, how you hammered up a ladder to summit the roof, and Dean held the nails. There were times in the middle when I loved you, heavy and soft. Yeah, we were way too stoned to stand, but we made it to the top. And you were holding both my hands and trying to pull me up. Mm -hmm. Cause I was 10 and I was 15 and I was yesterday afternoon. And I was hanging from the feeling that someday you would bloom. Just asking the aspens to grow a boy like you. Keep asking the aspens to grow a boy like you. There were times in the middle when I held you and it felt like snow. Asking the Aspens by singer-songwriter Kathleen of Steamboat Springs. Her latest Live from Highland Park is out now. And it's time for us to be out now with thanks to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Daniel Mesher. This is CPR News and KRCC.